Alright, if this trend keeps up, we're gonna have some issues here. This is a weird episode. I did enjoy this, but I would call, like, if I was actually inclined to do a more typical rating thing, this would probably be somewhere along the lines of a 5 or a 6 on the 0 to 10 scale. Uh, I actually prefer the negative 10 to 10 scale, in which case this would probably be more like a 1 or a 2. Uh, maybe a 3. Because it's a fairly average episode, and nowhere near the quality of later episodes, but I did find myself enjoying it. But I have to admit, a lot of that enjoyment comes from the fact that I already know these series, and I already know these characters. It's also really weird, because Catherine Powers wrote this script. Now, you might be like, who's Catherine Powers? Well, we'll be talking about that next week as well, when it comes to a TNG episode called Code of Honor. She wrote Code of Honor. She also wrote the Stargate 1 episode, Emancipation. Now, if you don't know those episodes, that's okay. Uh, that, that's cool. They're both, they're both god-awful. Let me just state that as bluntly as I possibly can. So then we get to this episode, and it's like, you wrote this one? Turns out there were some significant rewrites in the process. Uh, apparently she was originally going to be lovers with... Ton, I think? Yeah, pretty sure that was his name, Ton. <laughs> but, uh, I am so bad with names. You know, I was actually, I actually had a comment that came in just yesterday who told me how terrible I am at this whole character analysis thing because I keep forgetting people's names. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a fair assessment. I do forget people's names all the time, and yet I can r r rattle off, you know, names that are stuck in my head, off the top of my head, without bothering, but whatever. Point being, this is a weird episode, but I was digging into it, and I'm like, why is this good? I mean, I know that sounds like a weird thing, but why is this a decent episode? And as I started digging into the creation of, I realized that there's a man named Peter Allen Fields who could probably be single-handedly credited with this being a good episode. Peter Allen Fields did two things for the show. He crafted Garrick, and he made Kira and Odo have a pre-existing friendship from the old days. This is something that was actually invented here, and I mention that because that means that that was not intended originally when they did Emissary, which makes some of their interactions make a little bit more sense. But the Garak thing is pretty much invaluable. So, Garak is introduced to the show, and what else can I say about such an interesting character, except that even in his first outing, he's already interesting. This is, strangely enough, an episode that is almost as much about Garak as it is about Kira. And that's fascinating, given the fact that he is, at best, a secondary, uh, you know, a B-list character, probably more accurately a C-list character at this point in time. And he was just introduced. <laughs> but I can see the fingerprints, if you will, of Catherine Powers on this script, because it's too obvious. There are too many times when something is implied, or shown, or intimated, and then it's stated outright. You know, just in case you were too stupid to pick up on it. And it does that constantly. Like, every major point the episode makes, it's like, kaplong, kaplong. There's even a scene where Odo flat out calls out the theme, or rather, one of the major themes of the episode, by talking about pretense. As if a character just walked up and said, so this thematic work is about such and such. You know, it's, come on. We're not that stupid. Give us some credit. I do also want to give some credit to Vaughn Armstrong. He's a semi-recurring Star Trek actor. He's been doing a lot of roles over the years, most notably uh, 
Oh, God. And now I can't think of someone else's name. I want to say Admiral Forrest over on Enterprise, but he has actually done quite a few roles over the course of his Star Trek career. And I actually think he does a pretty good Cardassian here because he comes across as a Cardassian, but not a completely unreasonable one. It's too easy to play a Cardassian, who is this you know, venom-spitting villain, you know. Von Armstrong manages to come across as an irritable Cardassian, because he's irritated at what he's having to go through, but not one who is overly antagonistic. And I kind of like that, but moving on. So this is the episode that introduces Garrick. I'm not going to do a sit-down diatribe about Garrick now. All I'm going to say is that, after you're on, ugh, is that the very first episode he was ever introduced in already pretty well establishes the kind of person Garrick is. And once again, we see that Deep Space Nine has this whole character arc thing going for them. We'll talk more about that as we go through it. So let's let's start going through the episodes. So, uh, this episode starts off with Garrick sitting down to Bashir. Now, I love going back through these episodes because you can see both mentalities, and you can decide for yourself if they both fit. There's the mentality of Bashir, who is very book-smart, but an idiot, you know, in other words, someone who has no experience, someone who's never been out in the field, so to speak. We all know people like that, right? Well, maybe we don't, but I, I know people like that, you know, and the kind of person who can diagnose something or troubleshoot something or really knows their stuff in their given field, but have never actually applied it, you know. Some people say this is the difference between a scientist and an engineer, but that's getting into generics and, of course, some elitism, so let's just leave that at the board. Point being... You can tell that that was the original intent with Bashir in many scenes. And yet it also works astonishingly well when you think of Bashir the superhuman, the man who's pretending to be a blithering idiot, who just happens to be the one that Garrick takes interest in. Now, why would Garrick take interest in Bashir? Well, if he's a blithering idiot... He takes interest in him because he can then have someone to, you know, work off of, manipulate, still have some fingers in the game, but he's got this front man to do all the real work for him. Or, Garrick accurately recognized that there was more to Bashir than he, than he thought, and he wanted to know what that more was. So then, Bashir, of course, uh, Bashir runs as like, oh my god, there's this spy, blah, 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 blah either because he's an idiot or because he's obfuscating. Probably my favorite example of this is when Garrick says, you know, we need to go look at this, and Bashir apparently has the brain of a two-year-old because he doesn't pick up on the subtext or the pretense, if you will, or the, uh, yeah, pretense of what Garrick is saying. Now, we can either look at this as if Bashir is legitimately inexperienced or stupid enough to not pick up on such incredibly obvious subtext, or that he happens to be seeing exactly what's going on and thinks, okay, if I act on this on my own, this is going to look bad. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Commander Sisko and act dumb. Okay, oh, Sisko, oh my god, what should I do? I think you should go get a suit, you know. And you notice how he, he almost exposits in the way that he explains his dilemma to Sisko. Again, probably a bit too obvious, but in my opinion, this still fits both perspectives of Bashir. So, they have this intro action sequence. Got to have that first act action sequence. Oh, this is a teaser, actually. You know, oh my god, the Cardassians have entered Bajoran space and are threatening a Bajoran craft. 
How big is Bajoran space? Real question. Because last I checked, all the Bajorans have is Bajor and part of a space station, right? Um, do they even have rights to their own system? I'm asking sincerely. I'm not actually sure. Because it's entirely possible that they are, you know, you know they've got, uh, oh, I forget what that's called. Like, the sphere of influence only goes out so far past Deep Space Nine and the wormhole and past Bajor itself. So really, really small sphere of influence that doesn't even encompass their entire system. That is possible. I don't know, but I mention that because they see this Cardassian ship and it's like, oh my god, yep, nope, verified, they've entered Bajoran space. And within seconds of that, they're in transporter range. That only really makes... This is probably just bad writing. Let's just be 100% clear about it. This is probably just a mistake on behalf of the writers. But it surprisingly makes sense to me if you assume that the projected sphere of influence of Bajor is actually really, really small, and they really do were just entering Bajoran territory as they were entering the range of Deep Space Nine itself. Just food for thought there. So, there's a lot of politics in this episode, which... It's start, starting to get, you know, this is good, I like this. I like more political stories. Again, not bureaucratic stories, more of a political stint. So, we've got two situations, both of which are rather tricky. First of all, Kira and Sisko have what is effectively a shouting match in the middle of the promenade, which is not really good blocking and not really good scene construction, if I'm being completely blunt. But, it emphasizes the problem here. Cisco, of course, has his own priorities and perspectives, but despite being the Federation viewpoint, Cisco does have a clear demonstrable interest in the well-being and good of Bajor itself. Remember, that is effectively his assignment here. Not just represent Federation interests, but take care of Bajor. And, and this is something that was emphasized even, even now, even this early on in the series. We know that this is thing. So he's not just the outsider. But then Kira's perspective is we need to, and I love how she says this, we need to repatriotize. We need to bring these splinter groups all back into the fold. They need to become part of the greater whole again so that we can actually have a unified and strong Bajor. We need these people on our side. And it's easy to see where she's coming from on that because what we're seeing is the merger of the two mindsets of Kira Norris, which hasn't really come up before now. But, of course, this is the first time she's actually become her own distinct character, and she she could be called someone who is starting to drift away from Olaren. All of these lines, she said, would still fit in the mouth of Rolaren, but they fit better in the mouth of Kira Norris. Because we have someone who used to be a <clears throat> freedom fighter and understands what that's like, and we have someone who is now trying to build something. If you'll forgive me for segueing for a moment. One of the things that tends to irritate me about real life and fiction, although mo more in fiction than real life, is when you've got insert rebel group A or insurrection group B or freedom fighter group C, who are like, we need to go after this evil group. Now, in most works of fiction, the evil group they're going after is pretty decisively evil. That's not something that's on the table for debate. But they have no plan for now what? Okay, you do. You, let's say you do it. You kick out the evil force. Now what? Most groups like that, in fiction especially, are not designed to 
deal with that change of atmosphere, that change of structure from guerrilla warfare and insurrection or civil war, whatever it actually happens to be, given the circumstances, you know, again, you know, rebels, insurrection, warfare, terrorists, you know, whatever you want to call it, and switching from that to legitimate government. Bunch of guys in caves who can plan an assault, that's great and useful under the right circumstances. But when there's no one to assault, now what? Now, a good work of fiction, in my experience, will, will touch on this problem will actually make this a story point that, okay, now we have to form our own government. Uh, some of the better Star Wars works in the EU analyzed that exact same point when it came to the rebellion's transition into the New Republic. And in fact, to be blunt, if it wasn't for Mon Mothma, the New Republic probably would have collapsed within, like, a year at best. And, you know, that's, that's good. I like that. I like that analysis. And Deep Space, Deep Space Nine is doing the same thing. Because we see three perspectives throughout the course of this episode with regards to that mentality. We see the provisional government, who are clearly inexperienced at what they're doing, but trying to make a go of it. We see the straight-up, you know, freedom fighter in Tannen, or whatever the hell his name was, who wants nothing to do with it and considers those people traitors to the cause, and we must make Bajor for Bajorans. He even says that line word for word, Bajor for Bajorans. We must destroy the wormhole. It's the only way to get Bajor off the map. And blah, 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 blah. And then we see Kira, who is pretty much smack dab in the middle. Someone who knows the perspective of the former and understands the perspective of the latter and who is torn between the two. I mentioned earlier the theme of pretense, but as much as that is the obvious theme, and I know I do this a lot in my fictional analysis, I think that was the intended theme by the writer, Catherine Powers, but I feel like a stronger theme underneath that is... I'm trying to think of the word to phrase this with. Because it's not loyalties. That's not the word I want to use. But it's leaning in that direction. But it's not loyalties. You know, the episode tries to frame it as if Kira has to choose between her, you know, between... God, I... I can't remember his goddamn name. Between terrorist dude and Cisco, right? The the episode tries to frame it that way, but even a cursory examination shows that that's not the choice she has. Generate generationalism. That's where I'm going with this. The old versus the new. The idea of progressing forward or stagnating backwards. That's what the real theme of this is, because we see this as she's like. We need to do things differently. Now, she's willing to work with him. She's willing to work with the provisional government, get the counselors on her side, convince him to, to, to join up and become an official member of this, and then that would be a, a, the first domino to help convince other members of, of, the, of the group in order to try and join in. You know, there's a lot of logic there. And trying to, to bring the old into the new. But then the old says, well, I don't, have, I don't, I don't want anything to do with that. I got my own plans, so pick. Do you want to be part of this new provisional government that's trying to build a new future for Bajor and has no idea what it's doing, or do you want to be with me and fight for Bajor for Bajorans? I'm trying not to slant this question too hard, because if you think about it with even a modicum of intellect, there is no choice here. She has to choose the new provisional government. It is their only hope. She said as much in the first episode, Emissary. And given that this is what she chooses, 
obviously she agrees with that. But she does not choose Cisco. This is not about loyalties. This is about hard choices. And I think that's part of why I actually do really like this episode, even though it's overall kind of just above average, at least relative to Deep Space Nine's overall quality. I also like how this is part of Garrick's story here. Because what is the old Cardassian? What is the old stagnant ways? The, the manipulator, the schemer, the one who's willing to work with them. My very first thought when Garrick is like bargaining with the Duras sisters in order to get a hold of... Uh, hang on, this is irritating me. What is his name? It starts with a T. Tana! Okay, I was close. <sighs> I'm bad with names. What do you want with me? I don't have his him anywhere in my notes, by the way. Otherwise, I would have just looked down and wrote down. But I didn't see anywhere where he was noteworthy. Because he's not actually that interesting in this episode. He's not. He's typical terrorist guy who happens to be a past interest of one of the main characters who is so radical that he doesn't even have a viewpoint. He, he's basically a straw man character. He's not interesting. So I didn't write him down because I have nothing else to say about him. He is written to be part of the actual dilemma, which has nothing to do with him. It has to do with the mentality. It has to do with the perspectives. It has to do with the politics. It has to do with the philosophy involved. What do you do when, the, when history is on the move? She even flat out says that. You know, the old ways don't work anymore. And that says so much. But anyways, getting back to Garrick. Getting back to Garrick. So Garrick... You know, he, he, he kind of slides back into the whole thing. Well, we'll buy, we'll buy Tana from you, absolutely. And I'm sitting here thinking, you can't do that. Now, let's be honest. Knowing all that we know, it's pretty likely that if Garrick really did want to get Tana in the hands of the Cardassians, he could arrange that. He's got connections, and he's intelligent, and he's done this for a long time, and he's really good at it. So he could probably make that happen. But he doesn't have the official connections back home. And we know this, given the future. He is effectively in exile here, actually. So, my first thought, rewatching this, is wait. And I started wondering, is this him actually bargaining, or no? And this is why I say this is as much a Garrick story as a Kira story. And again, the two characters kind of help emphasize each other. Both make the same choices, but at different times. Because Garrick has already made his choice. Garrick, the pragmatic, cynical, professional spy, has already adjusted to the new way. The old ways don't work anymore. Okay, new ways, done. Kira, Kira's the one dragging her heels, because she's not a professional spy, because she's not a cynical or pragmatic person. She is, in fact, a very emotional, very sentimental person, the kind of person who would rather do something because it's right than because it's correct. And she is the kind of person who has to go down and talk with Odo, a cynical, pragmatic person, in order to really have this light shined on her. And I love how that does that, by the way. No, I really do. The scene between her and Odo was actually great. A little too obvious. Like I said, he, he was a little too blatant about it in some of the dialogue. But that's the first time I've seen some honest-to-God chemistry on the camera in Deep Space Nine. Now, I know, I make it sound like a big deal. But as I mentioned, I didn't see any real chemistry between the actors in Emissary, in my opinion. But here, Nana Visitor and Renea Bergenois had some legitimate chemistry together. It's 
kind of obvious in, in hindsight, because the two will have amazing chemistry in the future, right up until the romance starts. <laughs> but we'll save that for when we get there, because I have my own opinions. And honestly, I'm curious if, with analysis mode on, I'll change my mind on that. But anyways... So Odo has to pretty much force her hand. She's sitting there like, I I can't do this. I mean, if I help, you know, Cisco, if I help the provisional government, I'm betraying my old friends and my old way of life. And Odo has some lines, which I actually bothered to write down. Forgive me. Oh, you know, she says, how can I betray my own people? And he asks the obvious question. Are they your people? She says, well, they used to be, they used to be just how, I used to be just like them. Odo brings up the obvious. Used to be? It's fascinating to me in its own right that it takes someone so blunt and so lacking in social graces to pretty much shove Kira's face into the reality of the situation. Because if, if, if I could go into my opinion on this one, I think Kira had already made her choice, and she hated it. Remember, would rather do the right thing than the correct thing. She would rather, you know, choose for morality reasons, or choose for loyalty, or choose for sentimentality, rather than choose because of cold calculus. But she is smart enough to recognize the situation. Quick aside, by the way, I'm kind of rewinding a little bit here. I like the... Uh, <laughs> I like Odo's comments about locking the Duras sisters up. It's a very Odo thing to do. What I find funny about it... <laughs> if you actually think about it for a moment... Odo is not... How do I put this? First of all, this is very Odo. And this is arguably the beginning of Odo's actual character arc. Lawful neutral, not lawful good. In other words, a person who is more interested in order than in justice, if you understand the, the distinction there. But what I find amusing is that if Cisco had taken him up on his offer, this could have actually worked out well for the Federation on a political level. Imagine how it would look if the Federation handed the Dura sisters over to Galron right about now. Tell me that wouldn't be just a little... A, a, a one additional jewel and, and help strengthen the relations between the two. And Gowron, of course, being able to shut down the Dura sisters. And, of course, they wouldn't be able to destroy the Enterprise D in generations. Uh, but I digress. I just thought it was interesting to think about. But really, it's more about Odo. Odo sees nothing wrong with this. And it's easy to see why he sees that. Because Odo is not interested in doing things legally or doing things because they are right he is interested in doing things because they are correct. Yes, I am deliberately paralleling Garak to Odo, and trust me, if you haven't seen this show, that'll come up many more times in the future. So, we got Garak, hang on, I'm looking at my notes here, seeing what it was, because I kind of covered everything. It's funny how much of DS9 I can do off the top of my head, forgive me. Obviously I couldn't remember Tana's name. But I'm looking down my notes. I already talked about that. I already talked about that. All of it, I just talked without having to check my notes. Um, yeah, no, that's basically everything. I only have two other quick notes to talk about, so I can just toss my notes over there. I love this show. Sorry. Um, what I want to talk about is 
what removing the wormhole would have actually done. This is kind of a hypothetical. Remember, I mentioned that adding the wormhole from a writing perspective and from an in-character perspective to the situation was a big deal and did a lot for the, for the sake of the show and a lot for accomplishing the, the kind of positioning that Bejor wants. Bejor wants to be on the map, and with good reason. They want to be. They want to actually have something to add to the galaxy, rather than just being another backwards planet. Because otherwise, well, they're right back where they started, aren't they? Remember, although we don't actually know all this yet, Bejor was a fairly peaceful, you know, re fairly low tech society. Not not super low tech, but nowhere near you know TNG levels. Maybe like TOS range. Maybe even less than that. Maybe like Enterprise range level of technology. When the Cardassians showed up fifty years ago. Think about that for a minute. They had their own peaceful, quiet life in their own little corner, and there was nothing wrong with that right up until another power showed up and decided, we want that. And so they took it. In my opinion, while I applaud what Bejor had, and it would obviously be the ideal to go back to that in a pragmatic, cynical reality, you can't just go back to that, because then all you're doing is leaving the door open. You know? It's like, if I could use a parallel. I don't know where you live, anybody who's listening to this right now, but I want you to imagine for a moment if you just left your door open, or even took your front door off its hinges. Just It's an open doorway now, right? Now let's ignore problems of weather, because that's obviously another thing. Just imagine that anybody could walk into your home at any time for any reason, right? Now, I don't know where you live, but at most places I've lived, that wouldn't be a problem about 99% of the time. But that's not the problem. The problem is the 1% of the time. The problem is the one time someone shows up and decides to just start taking stuff. Especially if you're not there. Or decides to start saying, well, this is mine now. Now, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously this analogy doesn't work perfectly because, you know, you could call the cops and all that. But you get where I'm going with this? That's what Be Bajor did. They left the welcome mat out because they didn't have anything to defend themselves. It, let, me, let me use a different analogy. It's like if you're playing a 4X game, okay? I'm sure several of you played 4X games, right? And you have been focusing on your research and your science and your culture and your happiness, and you have plenty of money and resources and happiness and all this fun stuff, and you have this burgeoning, prosperous civilization that has a token military and no defenses. Now that can and will work, right up until someone decides that they want what you have and they've got a bigger stick than you. And so it's so logical why Bejor then would want the wormhole because the wormhole brings trade, because the wormhole brings political interest. Although that will focus the attention of more entities on Bejor, more of that attention will be positive. And remember, Bejor is already considering entry into the Federation, and if they formally become a member of the Federation, this becomes Federation territory, and that defense becomes ironclad. Because now you go after Bejor, you're going after the entire Federation. And now you've got that to deal with. So, while I get what Hitana was going for with regards to getting rid of the wormhole, it's such a short-sighted move but that's actually brilliant. Or I shouldn't say brilliant, but it's well written. Because that is exactly the kind of thinking that a freedom fighter is used to. Someone who isn't thinking about, now what? 
someone who isn't thinking about, well, now that we've beaten out the bad guys, now what? He's still thinking of this as if they're still under the occupation. It's just now he wants to get everyone out of Dodge, rather than just the Cardassians. And that kind of thinking doesn't work all the time. The old ways don't work anymore. That's really all I've got. I had one other note about how funny it is to me that Cisco just plays hardball with the guy. He's like, listen, you could surrender to me or you can surrender to the Cardassians. Take your pick. And the guy's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll surrender to you. <laughs> just a nice little touch. Good episode. I'm looking forward to seeing what we have next, and I will be seeing you guys next time.